0: Hi everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our awesome sponsors at Ziwi. Our furry pals are carnivores, and Ziwi gets that. Their peak prey recipes are spot on with what they would choose in the wild. We're talking real meat, organs, fish, and even green mussels. Ziwi's been all about peak nutrition since 2002. Ethical, sustainable, and packed with only the purest ingredients from New Zealand. If you want your pet munching on what they're biologically designed to thrive on, check out Ziwi. And for 20% off, feel free to put in our discount code, canonoptima 20 What the dog doing? Joe Rosie. I'm a big fan. This podcast has afforded me the opportunity to talk to my heroes. Just uh, being fully transparent here, you've been in an error pod in my ear every single morning while I'm changing diapers and cleaning and listening to all of your various scientific curriculums and having to stop and Google words like salient. So I know what it means. (laughs) But you were a big speed bump in my development as a dog trainer. What I mean by that is I didn't quite look into not only the bigger bodies of science, but what the literature says, what the peer-reviewed studies tell us that we know versus what we don't know I was never thinking on that level and it's just been such a wild ride to listen to you and also incorporate everything you have to say in my script with my clients and further my path as a trainer so I really wanted to thank you for that
1: thank you very much I love it I love I think for me it's always been about understanding the science but being able to apply it like science is nonsense without application Like it's just words. It's just pointless tests unless it actually means something in real life and unless it makes things better, really, or at least it tests things so that we can try and do things in a way that are better so that we can progress. And so I think exploring the science is super important. I love it. But only in as far as it helps me understand what I'm doing with dogs.
0: It's funny that 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 comes through. So when I've described you to a lot of my dog trainer members of my community and the way I describe you is a perfect trainer, the trainer that is informed and understands the academics, understands what the sciences have to say, but then also has a vested interest in application and is extremely capable, not just in behavior modification, but even taking it a step further and swimming in the protection sport waters. You don't see that in typically see one or the other. I know my stuff. Listen to me. And I can do some shit. Watch me. But you don't see both these days.
1: No, I know it's hard. It's a lot of work to be both. I think. Um, I think that I think you're right. And I don't really know why that is. I find it very frustrating. It's one of my biggest frustrations in the industry. Is that people, kids that go down to university, they go and they get a degree in applied behavior or in behavior management, or and universities seem to be churning out these kids with these brilliant degrees. Are fantastic at doing the science, but just don't have the application, they don't have the skills, they don't have the ability. And one without the other is pointless, I think. I just don't see the point. You can go to a client's house and you can tell them, This is why your dog is showing this behavior. But that's a waste of time to a client. A client doesn't need to know why if you can't change it. You need to say, This is how we're going to fix this. And I know people hate talking about fixes, but really that's our job. Our job is to fix it. <laughs> yep.
0: So what led you to have this this duality in dog training? Was it how did you start off? Was it a love for dogs, a love for science? A bit of both?
1: Yeah. Love love for animals for sure. So I grew up around animals. I used to spend a lot of time I wasn't like a rich kid that had ponies at all, but I used to just hang around a sheep farmer that had a bunch of horses. And if I'm honest, my first my first ever boyfriend was a gypsy and he had horses and dogs and i dissuaded persuaded my mum to get us a dog and I was allowed down to the rescue center to choose it and so I went and chose it I chose a set across spring of, of Spaniel called Toby and and then I, and then being around a shepherd who had happened to have horses meant that I was also around a lot of sheep dogs and so I began understanding working dogs from that level a little bit and I just, I was always around animals. If you look at any photo of me from about six months old to about 15, it was never, it was, it was just always joining the animals, always. And I remember going to careers advice, my work experience when I was 16 was at a vet and I didn't really enjoy it, it was a bit boring. And I remember going to the careers advisor and them saying to me, the only thing that you can do with animals that's going to earn you any money is to be a vet. And I remember thinking, oh, don't really fancy that? They seem like they do the same thing every day. It's like very, it's very clinical. It's just not really my bag. So my mum, uh, she said to me, "You can't make any money with animals, but just carry on getting either more qualified or more experience in the things that you love, and that will lead you to something that you love." Which was one of the best bits of advice I've ever been given. And so I did my A levels. Was I academic? I was always quite smart at school. I was never like the smartest. I was dyslexic. I've since been diagnosed with ADHD, haven't we all? And I was always much more interested in my social life and being a cool kid than studying, especially when I went to college. But I was always smart enough to get by. I was always smart enough to do well in the tests, even if I knew how to play the game, really. So I went to college. I got my A-levels. I then went to university and got accepted at a university through clearing and went and studied applied behavior. I know, um, applied psychology is what I studied, but in humans, not in dogs, because that was what was available to me, really. And I fancied it. I, I was enjoying learning about humans. I was always interested in how things behave. But when I got there, I realized pretty quickly that I had this like superpower to get really good grades. And like most of us, I experimented quite heavily with the various different chemicals at university and got quite involved in that scene and worked at a nightclub throughout the whole of my time at uni. So I was always tired and a little bit high in lectures, which meant that I was always like trying to find a loophole as to how I could get a good grade without doing the work. And I suddenly found out that if I, used, if I did stuff about animals, well, I already knew more than everybody in the room just because I always liked him and I always read about him and I always listened to podcasts about him and I always listened to videos. So I was like, if I can take the title of the essay and I can turn it into something about animals and I can find a way of getting a good grade without having to do that much work. So that is what I did (laughs) and got got through my dissertation, which was on the attachment of young mammals, reunification of maternal fingers. And most of my essays were broadly speaking about antisocial behaviour in animals so that I could claw claw my way to a good grade, <laughs> and then after that I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do so I did a short course that gets you quantified as a journalist because I thought that might be quite fun and then the job came up at an animal charity writing like all the leaflets like all the educational leaflets and all that kind of stuff about the animals and I was like that is perfect that sews so together the things that I've been doing and lovely. Like I've got the job and within a week of working there I adopted a pit bull and he was just a nightmare dog from the word go, like absolute nightmare. He had his ears chopped off with a pair of scissors in a public toilet. He was just like a game-bred fighting dog from the London streets. And I was like, oh, I love this dog. He's amazing. And he just, he annihilated everyone and everything and wanted to kill everything and just destroy the world. So, that's the dog behind me, actually, it's this is the dog here, Archie. So I've got Archie, and at the same time, I started an education campaign called Respectable, which is about respecting buddies as to who they are and all that kind of stuff. And that led me to go to the behaviour clinics. I had a behaviour clinic. And so I went down to the behaviour clinic and my whole brain, like, exploded like a Christmas tree. And I was like, oh, Mecca. This is where I belong. This is where I belong. This is where I should have been the whole time. Why didn't anyone tell me about this place? It's like something magic or Harry Potter. It was, like, everything I ever wanted. I can say this now because... It doesn't really matter because I don't work there anymore. So I started making loads of fake meetings, loads of fake meetings to go up to the behaviour. And they knew why I was doing it. And I used to go there and I'd just sit on the table and I'd be like, hey, I'm back here again. They'd be like, are you mean someone? i like, yeah, I've got a meeting tomorrow, which is why I'm in this, Like, why I'm in Oxford, which is always a lie. They always knew it was a lie. And instead I'd like listening on phone calls, I'd stooge for them. And it got to the point where it just got silly. I was allowed to do a postgrad while I was working there. And so, I started working on my postgrad in animal behavior while I was working there, and then just spent all my time there, all my time, mainly trying to learn about the absolute classic reprobate dog that I had, who would like bite my arms and just kill other dogs and just do all the bad things. And then when I finished that, I thought to myself, like, I, I started getting really interested in pit bulls mainly and in breed specific legislation and in like those sorts of dogs and so I managed to I found a guy who ran like a behavior center but that kind of specialized in that side of things and he did like the most amount of legal assessments in the country so I knew that he was well known for not having a problem employing younger women So I used that to my advantage and managed to get a job there and started helping him on his assessment. Now, it turns out he was not very nice. He was not very nice to me or my dog. And he actually, one day I'm going to publish this letter that he wrote to me when I left saying, you will never be anything in the dog world. You might as well hang up your cap now. You will never be anything. In fact, you shouldn't even choose a job where you need to read and write. That's what he said to me. Thanks for that. But that was the day left. But I worked there a year before that, just assisting on loads of them until I had enough experience that I could apply to the CPS to do expert witness work myself, which I then did and got accepted and so then started doing expert witness work. Then I started running the hate clinic and that just took off really quickly. And within two years, I had eight members of staff working for me. And then someone asked me to write a book. A vet actually asked me to write a manual based on this really particular protocol that I'd created to help dogs choose whether or not they wanted to be physically examined. I started shaping dogs to do physio movement so that they didn't overstretch. And it was all based on that. And she said to me, look, can you write this down for our bets? So I started writing it down for our bets. And I got a little way through it and I thought to myself, why am I doing this? I could probably publish this. as quite a, quite a good thing. So I went to my bookshelf and I chose my two favourite books that are on the bookshelf at the time, which I think was Culture Clash and something else literally just emailed the publishers from there and said look I've got half a script would you publish it both of them wanted it so I had them fighting off against each other I chose one that gave me the most amount of money published that book and that kind of after that I began to get a bit more of a profile people began to like want to hear what I had to say wanted to see my training I'd got two more dogs by then and then I started being asked by various different companies to lecture either for their company or for their university. I did some lectures at different places just about dogs and like the way I saw it and also about this protocol that I'd created. Then I started lecturing for this particular institution. I did like a guest lecture for them. And I realized that all of the advice they were giving each other about the was terrible, like not very good at all. Like, that they were training these guys up to be fairly good dog trainers. But they didn't, they weren't training them enough about behavior. And then they were taking on behavior cases and they just didn't have the understanding. So they were trying to use the skills that they had and the broader understanding of things like the quadrant and just applying it to behavior without any really understanding about motivation and like reading the dogs and some of the things that can really go wrong, for example, on an extinction pest if you're working with resource value. I messaged the main boss and just said, look it feels like you don't have, like your organisation has a really good understanding of training, but no understanding of behaviour. If you want me to run some lectures, I will. And then he said, let's make a whole company. So we made a company. And so I started running lectures for them. Around that time, a friend of mine, Sarah, fell pregnant. And she used to do a show about cats. And she messaged me and she said to me, do you fancy coming down and doing this particular bit of filming for me? Because I can't think of anyone else who'd be better at it. And you know about cats and dogs, and it's about cats versus dogs. So I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds fun. So I went down there and did that filming, that's for Sky 1. And then the producer there was like, is this your first one filming? And I was like, yeah. He was like, you're really good at this. He was like, do you mind if I put you forward for another show? He's like, we've supposedly almost finished casting for it, but I think they'd accept like a last-minute tuck-in if you're available tomorrow to make like a test reel for it. And I was like, yeah. So then literally the next day I did a test rail for it. And then about two weeks later I got it and that was a series on Channel 4. And, and so that that was like six months filming. After that, that like massively escalated into doing another series for another channel and then another series for Channel 4. And I've just been part of a series in Channel 5. And so that kind of like led towards all the TV stuff. And then meanwhile, me and Nando got together and started the School of Canine Science. We bought Dino's did the school of canine science and then me and nando split up and now wow now we'll see now i'm on this podcast
0: (laughs) (laughs) what is the span between post-grad game bred bully a sane asylum and this journey of what sounds like opportunity after opportunity books and tv what's the span there
1: but I'm forty this year. So there, I must have been fifteen years ish. Around fifteen years, a little bit longer.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. It's been a while. It's one of those funny ones. I'm not very good at time. So for me, that didn't feel it didn't feel like it was one thing after another thing There's loads of boredom in between that. But when I look back I think to myself, there was never a moment really where something wasn't going on. And if you were to ask me, like, since Socks has finished, what have you done? I'd probably say nothing. But then if you were to look, I've done like a TV series, probably a bunch of TV appearances. I've written a course, and I knows no, it's about it yet. I've been doing all these meetings about all this stuff that could happen. But it just doesn't really feel like that. I don't know why. I think because I've always been like that.
0: Yeah, lots of opportunity.
1: I think you manifested, don't you? It's just, you wake up in the morning and you believe that things are going to be good, that you're going to, you just think, I'm always going to have enough money and I'm always going to manage, I'm always going to survive and I'm always going to be doing stuff. Like the way I see it, every day when I wake up, all day I spend the day collecting things that I like in my head and I like see the things I like about everything in the world and I'll be like, oh, I like that, oh, I like that. And they're the things that you want in your life. You're just moving towards the, the directions of the people and the opportunities that are attractive to you and I think the more that you do that and the less scared you are the more things happen for you and then the, the, the doors open don't they?
0: I think with the old saying there's no such thing as a it's opportunity and being prepared to take that opportunity on I think probably with that kind of tenure and the work that you've done it leaves you extremely capable and able to take on any opportunity if you so choose that comes your way.
1: So it's about someone saying to you like I want you to run a marathon for me. Can you run a marathon for me? And you say, yeah, I'll run a marathon for you. And When? And they say, in four weeks' time. And you say yes, knowing that right at that moment, you're not good enough to do it. But knowing that you had the drive, the grit, and the discipline to make yourself, in four weeks' time, be good enough to run marathon.
0: Let me ask you, I know that you're probably the biggest advocate against the bully ban that's happening in the UK It's been really fun to watch you put pundits on their back feet and hand them their perceivable ass in an interview. But starting with your love and seeing all these crazy game bred pit bulls in a behavior clinic and this wild ride of a career and helping them and to it culminate to a countrywide ban. What are your general thoughts and feelings about it with being heavily invested in this breed and having it come to a head to this degree?
1: It's really difficult for me because knowing the breed means understanding the breed and understanding the breed, you understand their pros and their cons. And I think there are, I can see very clearly the reasons that someone like the type of people that work in government, and I can say this, I'm part of a steering group for government. I've spoken in parliament four times. Like I've been around these people a lot, so I understand their culture, they don't come from the same culture as me. They don't come from spending time with dogfires and gangs and people on the streets. They come from seeing working-class culture as scum. That's what they see. Those people went to Eton. They went to private schools. They see drug-taking and alcohol-drinking, hoodie-wearing, people who don't work with these scummy dogs. That's what they see. That is, But through their eyes, that is what they see. And they see that as indicative of general criminality Um, and fighting and all these bad things. And so I think that in and of itself, that prejudice against working class, doesn't cause them to make these decisions, but it certainly sets the scene up ready. So you have already the decision makers seeing the types of people that own these types of dogs in a very particular light, in a very particular negative light, in a light where in their perfect world These people wouldn't exist If they have to exist Then they would like them well, repressed and controlled As much as possible And so that that sets the scene for the whole thing Now One of the big problems For me With the whole thing Is that I think that the law enforcement And the law decision makers Are looking at the wrong thing Because to start with Same in America, same in every country Most countries is they don't look at dog bites. They're not looking at dog bites. They're not looking at dog attacks. They're not looking at dogs that are out of control in a public place. They're looking at fatality and they look and they hold this number of fatalities as a very important figure. And part of the reason for that is that they often quote that the World Health Organization states that dog bites are are a big problem for the world and that, that death by dog is a massive concern. But what they don't see is the reality that the only reason that the World Health Organization have any interest at all in dog bites is because of rabies. That is the sole reason the World Health Organization... Someone dies from rabies still every, what is it, 36 seconds, I think. Like, dogs biting people and giving people rabies is a massive problem, yeah? And that's why dog bites are a problem. Not because of fatality That's why dog fatality is a problem Not because of these dogs that are running around in the streets And end up biting and killing people Now if you look at the dogs that are Out of control in a public place The domestic dogs, not the feral dogs that have got rabies The the domestic dogs that for whatever reason Are in a situation where they decide They're going to bite someone And that person normally happens to be vulnerable Or old or young Enough that it kills them If you look at the figures of that Actually they're incredibly low They're incredibly low. Considering, bearing in mind that we've taken an apex predator and literally put it in a collar and on a lead and we'd walk it around the streets and have it in our house, right, the number of people that get killed by dogs is mind-blowingly low. And it's certainly lower than people who fall off their roof doing doing DIY. And it's certainly less than gun crimes or knife crimes or, or anything like this. So what we should, so to start with all of the statistics that are being spoken about, all of the numbers, they are a bit of a moot coin in my opinion. I think we're just much better off looking at dog attacks and dog bites because dog attacks and dog bites are a problem. One in three people will be bitten by a dog. That's not a good thing. It's not massively surprising, but it isn't a good thing. It is preventable. It is something we look at. When it comes to banning breeds or putting restrictions or controls on particular dogs for living a certain way or being a certain way. I think that we have to look at aggression and we have to look at dog bites. I don't think really fatalities should particularly be considered. I don't think that, that they're not a massive problem. And actually, when we look at the statistics, poverty increases, dog fatalities increase. That's always the same trend. You see it year on, year off. Unfortunately, it will happen. We have a blueprint as to who the victim will be. They won't let us ever examine the dogs because they shoot the dogs on the scene, which means that we don't really have any idea as to what the motivation of the dog is, which is frustrating. But having seen a lot of those scenes and watched a lot of those, that sort of footage, um, a lot of the time I do think it's resource guarding. I see dog bites is a massive problem. If we look at dog bites by breed, obviously that massively changes things and means that we have to look a lot more at, at the northern breeds, at huskies, at German shepherds, at other dogs that bite, including little dogs. If we look at dog bites by hospitalisation and by surgery, then, again, we still have to look at Labradors, we still have to look at German Shepherds, we still have to look at a lot of other breeds, not just the Billy breeds. However, in the same breath, there is no doubt in my mind that a nicely, and when I say nicely, a fit-for-purpose game-bred fighting dog like a pit bull is not a family pet. A nicely bred, beautiful family, American Stafford type pit bull can make a wonderful family pet. But the caveat of that is that it is still going to be prone to some level of dog aggression and that it is still going to be strong and muscular and boisterous. And again, if we look at other bully breeds, if we look at the American Bulldog, for example, these dogs are built to be defensive. They're going to look for opportunities to be suspicious so that they can bark at shit, because that's who they are, that's what they do. Does that make the best pet? Not really, not when you compare it to a Havachon or a Cockapoo that is not built for these things. And it's always going to be a difficult one because of all of those sorts of things. Is there a genetic predisposition towards grabbing hold of things until they die, <laughs> literally not letting go until either asphyxiation happens or else and the animal falls on the floor and cranial damage happens and they die. Yes, that is what they were bred to do. The same way that any dog bred to do anything for a long time, there will be a genetic predisposition towards that behaviour. When arousal increases, dogs tend to do what they were bred to do. And in the pit bull case and in, um, in the bully breed case, that often means jumping up, grabbing hold and not letting go. So they do pose a risk and therefore... I can understand that with all of that evidence, the government look at those dogs and they go, those people that we don't have those dogs that are predisposed towards those traits. This is a sign written to say, let's ban those dogs. However, and most importantly, has it been effective? No, it hasn't. But would they ban the people in 1991? So there they shouldn't be any pit bulls. There are more pit bulls now than there were in 1991 when they banned them. They, there are more dog bites happening year on year since they banned them. There are more fatalities, if that's what they want to count, happening year on year since they banned the pit bull terrier. So like we can see very clearly in other countries where pit bulls are not banned, the bite statistics are lower. <laughs> it's, uh, so for me, it's a no-brainer just because it's not effective. I can understand the common sense. I can understand why they think, the government think it's a good idea. It isn't a good idea. And it'll be exactly the same with the XL bully. It's not worse now because they've made it so completely totally confusing for law enforcement and for people like me that it's just a, a circus and a shit show. And now everybody's going, where can I move my dog that's going to be safe? So they've got all of these big muscular defensive bull breeds being rehomed, put in bands driven eight hours to places like Scotland that are now going to ban them as well, turfed out the car, feeling completely overwhelmed and confused, going to new homes, which make them even more of a liability to then bite someone, which is just going to perpetuate the situation, which means these people are now going to say, I knew we were in the right for banning them. Look what's happened. They've moved them all to Scotland. and The dogs have killed 190 people in Scotland. And Scotland then will then say, as they are now saying, we're going to ban them. So then they'll be banned everywhere because that's what happens, which is just silly when I think there is there's such... It's such a bad piece of legislation anyway. Like the whole Dangerous Dogs Act needs to be completely revamped because it's just a joke. It's just a joke. In terms of identification, you have a list of measurements that you have to measure the dog up to. If the dog measures 60% of these measurements, he is considered a pit bull type and therefore is dangerous irrespective of temperament, irrespective of what he's done. If I stop and search this guy because I think he's got drugs, I decide he hasn't hasn't got drugs today, but I want to keep him. I'm going to take his dog. I take his dog. I can measure it up because he's working class. It's likely to be a bully breed. I can probably measure that up to 60% of type if I want to. I can then ban a conviction on him for having a dangerous dog. And he has to come in. He has to ensure his dog. He has to have a green stick on him. He has to walk around in a muzzle. But... (sighs) It's just a circus. It's an
0: absolute circus. Yeah, I mean, government clearly has failed the breed, roping them into the perceivable class war. Where do you Mm -hmm. think society has failed the breed? I can't speak for your side of the pond, but I can speak for California, which is a very big supporter of bull breeds. A lot of lovers, a lot of advocates out here. Uh, the common thing that I see as a dog trainer is that they will turn them into cow chippos, muzzle them up, lock them away, but never truly give them the outlet that they're looking for. It's
1: a bit like the nannies in the sense of it's hard for a pet owner to give them the outlet that they need. It's it, They're not an easy dog to fulfill because uh, if you get a widespread bred border collie, yeah, and you put it in a hide, you can say to them, like, do sheep ball with it or I don't know if you have sheep ball out there. But, or do agility with it. Do something when this dog's going to be running fast and using its eyes and ideally controlling the movement of things. You can take it and train it to to do sheep. All of those outlets for that dog is appropriate. The outlets that are possible to do with a bully, we've <clears throat> got protection sports when the dog, again, can be jumping up and grabbing hold of something. And some bullies are very good at that. Although they're hard to train because that out is obviously a lot more difficult than something mm-hmm. like a shepherd. You have you have things like athletics and weight pool, which are great. I think fantastic. Same with GRC to a point. I think GRC is getting more well-known, which is great because that is giving the dogs a little bit more of an outlet is teaching people to play with them properly and stuff. But I think ultimately people get those dogs and there seems to be this like angel or devil black and white opinion on them, which is that either they are these absolutely gorgeous nanny bred dogs and love will fix everything and then they get the dog and they realize that actually as soon as it gets aroused it does bite everything and it is a bit of a nightmare and when it sees other dogs out and about it does jostle a little bit for a scrap quite enjoy a scrap etc cetera, etc cetera. and then they go shit and they put the dog in a muzzle or crate it and that ends up staying at home because they can't really handle it out and about it wasn't the dog that they thought it was going to be because they thought it was going to be this angel-like, beautiful, family-bred Labrador-type, just in a bully body. Or you end up with the people who think they're a devil dog and think that they're the worst thing in the world and that they're going to kill everything and bite everything and who wouldn't go anywhere near them. And the reality is somewhere in the middle, but that means that there are less owners appropriate for those dogs than there are dogs. People think they can walk into a shelter and get one of those dogs, and it's going to be the perfect family pet because they're nanny dogs. And the reality of it is that they're as much work. Some of them are as much work as a border collie or a malinois, because they're game bred. Finding the right outlet for a dog that was bred to fight other dogs is really difficult. They generally need a lot of wrestling and a lot of physical body type play, which some people normally men, but women as well. I love doing it, but can become very good at, really enjoy it, and be really appropriate with it. A lot of people don't want to do that with their dog. They can be super good at obedience and they can be super good at things like protection work and they can be super good, even like agility and stuff like that to get some of that physical outlet. But again, the types of people who tend to go for those types of dogs are not the type, usually the types of people that want to do agility and run around with their dog like that. They generally They, they generally want a normal family pet and they're actually not a great choice for a normal family pet. And not a lot of them are. And so I do think it's, I think it's really hard. I think it's hard on the owners. I don't think, I just think there are too many of them and not enough appropriate homes. And that's the sad reality of it. Is that there was this massive boom of breeding these bullies. And so now there's shit tons of them. And people going to rescue and feel bad for them. And so take on the dog that's been there the longest or the or the one that's had the roughest ride or just a bully because they know that there are lots of bullies in and is doing a nice thing. And it is doing a nice thing. It is saving a life. Would that dog probably be euthanized otherwise? Probably yes, because there are too many of them and there are not. So ultimately, the answer is we need to breed less of them and the ones that we need to breed, we need to breed better. And we need to do that. We need to legalize them and we need the kennel club to recognize them as a breed because if we were to legalize them and the kennel club was to recognize them as a breed, then there'd be people like me that would happily be a breed advocate and start a breed club like you would with any other breed, which is protective of the breed. If you have a breed club that care about the standards of the breed, then that does ultimately protect a lot of the breeding channels. Then you can have registered breeders, and then those breeders will be looking at the characteristics from the kennel club perspective, which would be protective of the future of the breed. But that does cause some issues, because as we know, genetically speaking, if you breed 4.8 years, you are going to get certain behaviour traits because that's what happens. That's how we have all these beautiful different breeds of dog that look so different. There's more variety in dogs than any other species in the world. And part of the reason for that is that we have a dog that's very good at hunting. Let's say we've got a dog that's very good at hunting or we've got a dog that's very good at sniffing. And the dog that's very good at like tracking and sniffing, whatever genes are helping him with that behaviour seem to correlate with floppy ears. Because they do. When we look at the dogs that are generally very good at some work and tracking and stuff, they tend to have flop ears. And we have dogs that are bred for hunting, they tend to have long skinny legs, taller skinny body and very short hair. And that's not that people like to make up these stories that well, they have long legs because they run fast or they have long ears because they get, it gets the scent under the nose. We don't know any of that to be true. There's no research on that whatsoever. All we know is that genetically speaking, if you breed for a behavior characteristic you get a physical characteristics that go along with that that are just stuck to it this causes major problems when it comes to breeding because what that means is that if we say we're going to breed let's say we're going to breed dog aggression out of the bull terrier types those dogs aren't going to know like bull terrier types anymore that what's the one component of all the bull terrier types have is that dog aggression is that tenacity is that need to poke and be a little bit game? So if we breed it out of them, they're probably going to start looking like, I don't know, pubs or Frenchies or Labradors. And so there's always this real difficulty of if we breed solely for temperament, we are going to change the look of the dog. If we breed solely for looks, we are going to stabilise a certain temperament problem with the dog. So it's not an easy question to answer. I think that the general answer would be to end up with a working line and a family line of bullies and breed the family line of bullies as your nice couch potato, fat American safity types, the ones that are a little bit more fee that generally don't have many problems, and then continue to breed your athletic, slightly smaller, much leaner elliptical eyes, elliptical chest, that profile of dog, but breed a lot less of them and breed them specifically for sport and breed them specifically for they tend to do better at like IGP-based sports, really, than the rings. And that type of stuff, I think that's what I'd do.
0: And what you're really talking about is regulating the breeding industry. I don't know what it's like on your side. If 10 people were to get a bull breed, eight of them got them from Craigslist, from a backyard breeder, because it's cheap, it's affordable, they can find it today, they can pick it up today. And so accessibility has yes. sprouted the backyard breeding industry tremendously through omni retail
1: a hundred percent I think I think in a perfect world that we need to have much much harder restrictions and much higher punishments of people for breeding dogs, and like we need to come down much more heavily on on how they're advertised, where they're advertised, both us and you guys in the states consider. These animals as sentient beings. In fact, in the law in this country and in your country, there is talk of them being considered a member of the family. Certainly in case law, and therefore, if we're going to consider these creatures sentient beings and a member of the family, then we need to come down a lot harder on the advertising of baby sentient beings that are members of our family on Gumtree, on Craigslist. On places like this. I think having a maximum amount that, a do- or that any dog is being allowed to sell for is a, it would be a good start. Saying that dogs are not allowed to be sold for more than X amount of money. Because I think that will put a hell of a lot of people off breeding, especially those designer breeds when they become fashionable. And, and I think it will definitely put people off breeding for things like colour as well because they'll find they can't get significantly more for a double male bulldog than they could do a normal bulldog or a fluffy Frenchie than a normal Frenchie so I think that would also help and having a maximum amount of litters anybody's allowed to breathe per year as well as a kind of almost like a one litter rule where if you have more than one litter then then you have to start paying tax and VAT and all that kind of jazz I think that'd also be another really good way to do it but I think ultimately what's failed all of us is the microchipping system like it's just an absurd like, it's an absurd fucking, like, fuck up really, for everyone. Because if we think about the microchipping system, we have everything we need there to be able to regulate all of this. But it's just a shit show instead. Like, really, it should be illegal to sell a dog without a microchip. And it should be illegal to buy it all by. But if it was illegal for you to sell a dog, you're not allowed to sell a puppy if it doesn't have a microchip. And in the same way that I don't know if it's the same for you guys over there, but if I buy a car of someone, they have to register it into my name, and we do that online, or they register it on my name online, and then it comes up, and so on and so forth. If the microchipping system was the same, I buy the puppy, I have to register, they have to register it online, so it's now registered to me via the microchip. And if I sell that puppy, I have to make sure that I just go literally online, put the new owner's address and who they are, and they sign and they take that on. Then. What I don't understand is why you can have all your behavior reports on the same system or the veterinary history on the same system. Or if a dog gets lost in the street, you should be able to scan that microchip, see everybody that has ever been owned by, as well as every problem and every professional dog person that dog has seen. And if that was the case, then I think we'd be able to regulate breeding much, much, much more easily. Because you would say if you're having a litter of puppies, you have to declare it. You have to declare it in order to get your microchipping numbers. You can't sell the puppies without microchipping numbers. And then as soon as someone has declared, well, you've bred that dog four times. You're not allowed to do that.
0: We saw a supply and demand major shift pandemic-wise. You couldn't find a dog during the pandemic. All the breeders started going into hyperdrive and breeding as much as they could, putting as many litters on the ground. And post-pandemic, that sort of continued. And then when everybody went back to work and dumped half the dogs and the world back into the shelter to be euthanized. What we're seeing now with breeders is because there's not so much of a demand for their litters, they're just driving the litters to the parking lot of the shelter and dumping the litters of puppies in droves. Just literally every single day, puppies are being dumped so that the breeders can just forego their loss and just discard the pups. So it's, I absolutely agree with you on the microchipping piece. I think America doesn't I think you guys require it, correct?
1: Yeah, we do. It is, it's a illegal time to talk about a here, but there's A, no enforcement of that really, and B, more importantly, there's no central database. So there's like 10 different companies that do that. So I pick up a dog and I scan it. I can't, it's not like I can scan it and then just go on my app and go, Ooh. beep, 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 beep. What? where is this dog? What is it? Da, 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 da. I have to take the dog to the vet to be scanned. The dog then gets scanned at the vet. They then have to ring up the logging system to even get the address. It's like, you know, I'm surprised they're not faxing them. Do you know what I mean? What era are we in?
0: Yeah, that in America, it's not required. So it's even more of three steps back in the situation.
1: That's what surprises me about it. And there's good money to be made from that system. It's a great system. And it's like the DBNA, you know, It's a great system. It's like the car system. I, don't, I just don't understand. Like we have the infrastructure to do it, and it, it just solves so many problems. Like even knowing how many dogs there are, how many litters are being born, like where they're being born, like how many dog owners have more than one dog. All of these questions that are like the foundation-based questions that we need to understand before we can understand the culture of pet ownership in this country or your country. All of that are easily answered via this very simple step that would actually make life easier for owners, for rescues, for trainers, for vets, for everybody. Even when I look at the breed ban, yeah, think how much easier that'd be. You just go on the system, type in Excel bunny. How many of them have we got? Where are they? These people all receive a letter.
0: Yeah, it sounds like new agencies have to be created. It sounds it's expensive to store data. It sounds like you have to have an entity to come in to do that. And from what I'm told, with mm-hmm. the even with the vets and the different systems they use, it's a hodgepodge. Even The same is true for the medical industry. There's just so many separate companies that own slices of the pie and nothing is consolidated.
1: Systematically, doesn't it seem insane? Yep,
0: it does.
1: It's a problem that's going to perpetuate and perpetuate until eventually someone goes hold on a minute. let's stop let's scrap that let's do something new yeah
0: i agree can i ask just with all of your knowledge with the uh, wool breeds and dealing with the extreme behavior and seeing the things you've seen If a bull breed owner were listening to this podcast and looking at their dog right now on the couch, what are just a couple of things that they could do to improve their quality of life, their enrichment, ways that they could interact with them that could allow them to be more dog and do it safely?
1: Number one, hand feed the dog. That's always my number one, hand feed the dog. Like everybody really, like I wish that was just, if I could give one thing to do to every owner in the whole world, it'd be hand feed the dog. Take the dog's portion of food every day. Put it in a bun bag or what do you guys call it? A sunny pack. Um, Take it out on your walk and feed it from your hand. It's not behaviour contingent. dogs don't have to do anything. Just feed it from your hand on your walk every day. That's the first thing. Or even if you're not going on a walk, just feed it when you're standing in the kitchen. But Just feed it. That will up your engagement. It will change your relationship you have with your dog it will give you the ability to see your dog and the dog the ability to see you as something good. It changes everything, just hand feed it. That'd be number one. Then more specifically to bullies, I would say teach the dog to play tug. Tug is one of the things that the dog is going to do anyway. It's going to do it naturally. It's going to do it if you give it an outlet. If you don't give it an outlet, it's going to find a way of participating in that behavior because it is the most intrinsically reinforcing behavior in the universe. So to do that, I would say take a tug, play with the dog, very short moment first of play, bring the tug into your crutch, hold it as still as you possibly can until the dog eventually, and it might take a stalemate of 20 minutes, eventually lets go, even if it's just momentarily of that tug. The second they let go of it, Lift it up in the air, ask the dog to sit. As soon as the dog sits, bring it back down play with them again. And play that game with them relentlessly as much as you possibly can. Tiny short bursts, when the dog's managing it really well and literally as soon as they're letting go, they're going straight into the sit. Then you can start increasing the time that you're actually playing the tug with your dog. But just playing tug every day with a bully breed will in- make its life better, will increase the value of you, will make your life better because you'll have a better bond with the dog and putting that tiny little bit of control in where the dog is sitting will reduce their arousal after ensure that they can then start to self-manage themselves during those games and the third thing that i would say would be to slowly and calmly start teaching the dog to play with you not with a toy not to play with you and to do this just need to mimic your dog that's all you do if your dog is lying down go lie down with your dog and if your dog then puts a little paw on you put a little paw on the dog just mirror their behavior and that's how it starts and it will organically happen in a way where they'll start to body bash you a little bit and you can start to body bash them but just mimic them mirror them pretend there's a mirror between you and your dog and copy him as if you're taking the piss out of him and do it little bit by little bit for a few minutes and you'll find that something happens with your relationship whereby he's suddenly getting something from you that has been missing his life. And I think that body combat play, especially with big men, when they start to shoulder barge the dog and they can put their hand over them and the dog puts their hand out, all that kind of stuff, gives them at least a little taste of that feeling of combat, of that feeling of dog fighting, really, that they need in their life. And that can sometimes be enough for them to never need to express out outside of that situation. Words of wisdom will be that the same way that the Belgian Malinois needs you to be his co-pilot and his best friend, the Pitbull and the most of the bully breeds need you to be his absolute favorite enemy. And that's what he wants. He wants an opposition. He always wants it to be about you versus him. He will look up for situations to set them up so that it's you versus him and. The reason we call it game bread is because it's playful and it's fun. He's not being mean. He just likes opposition. That's just what he's been bred to be. And so if you can be his absolute favourite enemy, his favourite plaything, where it's you versus him, it's hide and seek, chase and then run away, he will love you forever. And then the, the, the last one, I guess, for puppies would be... Teach the dog to be neutral right from the get-go around other dogs. When other people are in the park socializing their dogs with other dogs, do not socialize your dog with other dogs. Teach your dog you are interesting. The other dogs are nothing. I would do that for every bull bullweed in the world if I could.
0: Yeah, because they're not going to present as etiquette. What I've seen in socializing a lot of the bullies out here is that they come in too hot. It's perceived as poor etiquette. The dog goes to correct them, and then as soon as the dog corrects them, it's on
1: it's on, it's brilliant. It's the best thing that happens. And then they're going to start poking to try that situation. They've just had their first ecstasy tablet, and Now they're going to spend the rest of their life trying to get it to say again and again.
0: I think that's where you should underscore the fact that when you say teach them to be neutral and limit their access, what you're really saying is keep some of their epigenetic inheritance from misfiring, from expressing an altercation. Yeah.
1: Never express it out there never express it a bully breed that's never fought is just so much easier than one that's ever fought and uh, so for me when i used to have puppies and it used to be quite controversial at the time 8 week old puppies would come to class and i'd be like this guy we're not doing playtime with this guy when everybody else is playing you're practicing your loose lead up and down and every time he ignores one of the other dogs that's when you're feeding him and, and people didn't used to like it because they used to say that it was prejudiced against the breed. And surely that's going to cause a dog that's more likely to have problems. And I can promise you that in 15, 20 years of training dogs, that's just not what happens. What happens is you end up with a dog that doesn't really give a shit about other dogs. And so that breed, that is your best case scenario. Because the trouble is that when they're puppies, they do play. Sometimes they play quite nicely until they reach about adolescence. And then that absolute bastards. And then people start ringing you up, and they say, "Ah, oh, but he's always been so good with dogs, and you're like, "How old is he now like seven months you're like, "Yeah, this is just his genes being expressed like just don't just you just don't bother from the start. It's good. To happen.
0: Would you classify them as a working breed
1: No, and I don't think I would because their lineage their recent lineage is not working I'd like to I'd like that to change I'd like them to be." I think they they are—they have the mentality of a working dog. They have the driver working dog. But their job itself, they've been stripped of their job. They've been made unemployed for a long time. And they've never really found a new role that's good. I think I'd describe them if I had to as a sports dog. Like, he's, I've seen some just insane... seen it has got some nice billy breeds, and she's had some wicked successes with dogs in the past, like Capone. And and there's some good dogs even on the agility field now. Some of them little tiny bred ones. They're a great sports dog if you want, if you're an enthusiastic dog owner who wants to spend their life training their dog for sports. Wicked choice.
0: I think the popularity and the rise of PSA, social media has shed the spotlight on PSA and people are now seeing it and they're enthusiastic about it. They think it looked cool, right? All of our PSA trainers are walking slow motion to drape music with their beautiful Belgian Malinois on social media and we're all like, ooh, wow!" Ah. but... <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. There's going to be one thing that can save the breed. A person going to a sport trainer, not only is it going to be a safe and structured introduction to training, dealing with arousal, but Mm -hmm. you can, in a safe way, give the dog more enrichment and elevate your skill set at the same token.
1: 100%. I think PSA is just born for bully breeds as well. I shouldn't say this, and thankfully they can't hear but, but, when I got fiasco my youngest Manny, I got her for Mondia Ring to start with because I was living in Spain, and Mondia ring is everywhere in Spain. If I had known that i that, that I was going to move to england and and do p s a with her, I probably wouldn't have got a Manny. I probably would have got a bully because i I actually think I think the pressure really suits them. it's a sport that's designed so much more than the other ring sports about teaching the dogs to oppose pressure, to come through pressure, these really high-pressured situations, more than any of the other ring sports. It's about PSA, it's about discrimination, and it's about pressure. That's what it's about. You know, sports like Mondia are about generalisation, really, and about concept learning and independence, whereas, whereas PSA is, is absolutely perfect. It's made for those really game-bred pit bulls will say, doesn't matter how loud, how far, I'm going to get through this, no matter what. It's ideal for them. And I, I don't know over there, but over here, we are getting so many people and some of the best dogs, actually, in PSA at the moment. Our, our bull herd, our, like Dutch Hider bull mixes and my many, many bull mixes, which are, in some ways are my worst nightmare and others are my absolute wet dream.
0: I think what I tell my clients all the time in the wintertime with their bullies... Go now. This is your time to work your animal and not worry about heat exhaustion. Fucking go.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> In
1: England where it's cold all the time.
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> oh my goodness. This was wonderful. Good. I want to thank you for spending like, the time.
1: I always like these types of podcasts. So I feel like I've just done a therapy session, but it was, I didn't have to pay for it. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's really cool to get to know you. You, Like I said, I've been listening to you for almost a year and a half now in the curriculum format. I know it's hush, but I am excited for whatever projects you have going on. You've definitely changed how I view dog training. Uh, You have humbled me probably every single day in terms of, okay, I know nothing. I know nothing. Also, I have to go back and listen to her curriculum again because I didn't understand half of it. Here we go. Click. Click. I do appreciate you jumping on and I am excited for whatever the next endeavors are. And uh, I, again, thank you so much for hanging out with me.
1: That's all right. No problem at all. I really enjoyed it. I have to sleep now though, because I have to get up at three o'clock in the morning to go to Spain.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Get some sleep. Bye.
1: Bye.